The Hello Careers podcast explores a system developed to align business needs with education and training. It's proven to be invaluable for dozens of businesses and people looking to create a new life for themselves. We are firm believers that you must screen for attitude and train for aptitude. We're unpacking our insight to help you build partnerships and earn public support for an age-old way of learning a skill, apprenticeship. We'll address issues such as where there's a skills gap, is there an education and training gap? How do you respond to a tight labor market? What happens when the major employer pulls out of your community? If you're looking to create an apprenticeship program or curious about what to do next, this show could be just the thing you've been looking for. I'm your host, Mark Sylvester. Now, let's get started and talk with the team. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, On this episode, we are going to be digging into the tips and tricks for those that are wanting to do a Hello Careers type apprenticeship program in their community and how do you manage modern apprenticeships. So I want to welcome back to the show, Michael, Luke, and Paula, who we met in episode one. And they're really the the gearbox for this um, entire operation as we go into a third year, right, Michael? Beginning of the third year. And what would you say is the the biggest aha that we didn't understand in episode one, season one, now that we've had a year under our belt? What's that the big tip that you would give to someone who's administering one of these programs? I think it's um, a combination of managing expectations and really thinking about designing a system from the beginning. Managing whose expectations? You need to be able to manage both the employer and the potential employee's expectations all along the way. What was the biggest misconception that they had that you've had to address? Well, I think it's anyone can perceive or decide whatever they want. People are going to hear what they want to hear all the time. And having been a high school teacher for many years, you can say something, write it on the board (laughs) and have as many expectations as you want, but you have to repeat it, repeat it. And so having a clear expectation and a clear message and being consistent with that message all along to all of your stakeholders really keeps you from being misunderstood, misheard, or, um, you know, just misunderstood. And I think there's a there were a couple of clear kind of things that came out that we realized were misconceptions that we didn't realize until we had gone through a couple of cycles. One of them from the candidate standpoint was that this was just a guaranteed job that once they were entered into the program, they were going to be automatically hired. They didn't have to work hard. They didn't have to try, you know, and for the most part, People did work hard. People did try. But there's always a small percentage that for some reason thought of this as a, a giveaway and something that that didn't require their input and effort. And what we've done in the last couple cohorts is been very, very clear that there are multiple gates throughout our process. And if you want the opportunity to even be introduced to an employer, you have to demonstrate your proficiency, and your effort in order to get through those gates and move on to the next phase. Give me an example of a couple of those gates that wouldn't be obvious. Well, I mean, I think the first is is 
I guess, a little obvious, but attendance. We have a really high requirement that through the course of our educational boot camp, people are there for virtually every class. You know, it's it's not as if it's something that is a casual commitment. They need to think of it as, you know, really their job. And the other is demonstration of being able to pass certain uh, both academic and interview tests throughout the, the process. So uh, they're tested from a technical standpoint, but they're also tested uh, in their ability to collaborate and be a team player and um, even do a mock interview as if they were being interviewed for a job. And we evaluate them through that process. It's about trust. The employers want to trust that who we're introducing to them to really has what it takes. Well, that's what you're you're taking a huge bunch of work off of the HR <laughs> hiring manager's plate, right? Because you've vetted these people through an extensive process and getting them into the program. And Paula, what have you learned? Now you were you came into this program as having hired people, so from the industry side, and now you're working as the program manager for it. What kind of tip do you have for HR? for the administrator who's talking to the hiring manager at these new businesses? Well, first of all, I wanted to touch a little bit on what Luke was saying in, uh, regarding the apprentices coming in and getting jobs, um, that we look at it more as warm connections for our apprentices. So we're making those connections between uh, the apprentices and the businesses. And that's part of what I do with the partners is, you know, build those relationships both with the apprentice side and with the business side. So when they do graduate, I can make the connections that really make sense. And that takes a lot off of the plate for the hiring manager for the business as well. I can recommend, you know, this is the type of person that might fit well with your team or they have a specific skill set or whether it's technical or soft skills. Um, so I can recommend those. And uh, that's proven to be really results oriented um, recently with the cohorts that have come through. Um, they, the hiring managers really appreciate those kind of recommendations. Um, so that's really important. And then also making sure that the apprentices understand that getting a job is a job. You know, it takes a lot of work. And we definitely don't do placements. We're not, we don't guarantee jobs for them all. We guarantee those, the, the leads, but not placements. So it's really up to them. And that's, we give them all the tools that they need from the skill set and the soft skills. And then it's up to them to build the relationships with employers, to follow up with emails, to send thank you notes, all of those types of things that you would do normally when you're looking for a job. Yeah, we don't even use the word placements anymore. It's all about the end of the day, the customer is the business and they have to choose to buy the product. And one of the things we've we've discovered is the ultimate solution to this challenge is rather than going out and finding, you know, the 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 people that are actively, you know, unemployed looking for work, we cast a really wide net and do our best to market this opportunity to uh, hopefully communities and channels of people that are going to be our superstars, right? We, we like to have a really big funnel uh, at the top of the funnel and be able to screen towards the cream of the crop. So for our first cohort, for example, we had 900 people submit their interest and screen down to ultimately 25 apprentices at the end of that. By doing that, 
you inherently end up with a much higher quality uh, individual and therefore a much higher percentage of them generally get hired as opposed to you've got 25 applicants and you take 25 students, the likelihood is there's going to be some in there that just aren't as motivated, aren't as hungry, um, and aren't as um, humble in, in their approach to things. So for an administrator who's setting up this program, when I hear there is a thousand applications and I have to go through and get down to 25, what have you learned on how to make that task easier? And then my kind of a follow-up question to that is, do you still have a thousand signing up for each one? Because that was the first one. Do you still have this, like a two orders of magnitude larger demand to get into the program than you actually admit? It's it's gotten smaller, but I think that's because we've gotten more targeted. So initially we were, you know, marketing this very, very broadly. Um, now we've kind of evolved our, our strategy to using a lot of digital marketing targeting techniques where we can be pretty laser targeted. And for example, for our most recent precision manufacturing cohort, we had, I think, about 225 applicants for 25 slots. But those 225, almost all of them were really well qualified from a standpoint of their interest and uh, their attitude and aptitude. It was pretty challenging to get through that 225 and get it down to 25 uh, because so many of them were qualified. Have you put together a, a rubric or something that you use to um, screen them and that we wouldn't normally think about? I mean, my my phrase is always humble, hungry, happy, smart. I mean, that's that's when we evaluated candidates, we kind of tried to scale them on each of those metrics. And, you know, some of those are pretty qualitative. But at the end of the day, when you're screening at that first level, it is a little bit more qualitative than it is technical and skill set based. Yeah, and I think having a, um, a CRM, a customer relationship management database, to be able to track all this and document it so that we can ensure that we're being consistent in how we select and that we have documentation of how we select. <clears throat> that way we can do, you know, virtual interviews and get that human factor because at the end, the final say is going to be the employer interviewing that. So the sooner we get that one-on-one -on -one interview and start asking some, you know, employer and, and hiring type questions, the sooner we understand, you know, what are we really working with here? How hungry, humble, happy, and smart are they? How passionate are they? Is this really the right fit for both of us? Because we're both sides should be interviewing each other to make sure that it's the right fit for the opportunity. We talked about digital marketing and micro-targeting in the first episode as, as a change now going forward. So you're really, really doing a better job. I'm curious with this 200, so it's now only one order of magnitude. Um, what did you learn or what do you think you learned from that 25 that is going to help your targeting even better for the next cohort? You know, anytime you really get to know a cohort, you get to peel back more layers of the onion. And whereas I may have targeted based on somebody that was interested in 3D printing or CNC manufacturing or welding, 
I now, after having that process of really getting to know them and their process of going through this boot camp, I can know that I need to target this particular brand of 3D printer or this type of welding or this particular um, website that somebody might go to who's posting on a forum related to some of these topics. So you you get a lot more deep um, in your understanding of who these people are and how to target them. I'm reminded of an episode of The Daily just in the last couple of weeks about how big data is being used by large um, educational like colleges and universities to figure out how much time people spend on websites and where they spend the time on the websites to figure out um, actually who has the better ability to pay uh, to go to the college. And they're using this machine learning in that regard. So is is big data a part of how you're finding people? It's it's involved in it. I mean, we went through a process over the course of the the few weeks that we were actively marketing this to evaluate the different uh, strategies, uh, copy imagery, calls to action that we were using to attract people, and we were continually refining all of that. So I was getting analytics about you know what particular marketing copy or uh, particular image was working, and then evolving and adapting. We even utilized a heat mapping tool on our landing page to determine, you know, what were people hovering on? What were people clicking on? And that gave us insights as to how to further evolve the marketing to be more efficient and more effective. Uh, I'm confident in our next iteration, we'll be able to go even further faster for less investment uh, because of the information that we gleaned through that uh, analytics process. We talked earlier about this being as much an ed tech startup as it is a, a government program. And that feels like an, a, a startup kind of thing to do as opposed to just, well, we'll just put up a website and we hope something happens. I mean, you're constantly working on fine tuning that. It is. It's it's launch, learn, and iterate and, and going through that that cycle, not only over and over again, but cycling as quickly as you can, getting feedback and information and data and acting on that very quickly because each cycle you're getting better and better and more efficient and each cycle builds on the last. And it's really a reflection of the type of labor market we have here in San Luis Obispo, underemployment and how do you attract people from, you know, that are probably already working to see and see themselves in a new opportunity that we're offering. Michael, I want to talk about the business model a little bit. And for a, a project administrator, someone who's wanting to bring this in, they, they've heard about the success and now they're thinking, I want to do this and they've got to go sell this internally. Um, what have you learned that might help them? What kind of guidance could you give them around the, just the business mechanics of it? Well, it is an ed tech startup, so where you're going to get your venture capital funds from is the starting place. For us, it was through the California Apprenticeship Initiative that the state of California um, has funding for. So that gives you your initial base funding. And then it's really being conscious of having to build that business model of understanding what your value proposition is and then who's your customer and establishing what is the price point that works for them. 
And then also being really conscious of not just relying upon one revenue stream, but thinking about multiple revenue streams that you can do it. There may still be foundations or other um, other grants that could give you ongoing support. There could be other government programs that um, allow for ongoing support like that, like the employer training uh, uh, program. Just being really thoughtful about not relying upon one source of funding or revenue, but exploring multiple sources of revenue so you're not locked in with just one. So are there fees to employers here? There aren't in our kind of pilot programs, uh, but as we get more and more uh, kind of uh, systematic in our process and are able to produce on an ongoing basis, uh, we do have plans to either do a model that is kind of a subscription-based option or even just a sponsorship option. As Michael said, we know we're going to be dependent on multiple revenue streams in order to make this work. I don't think that uh, it's realistic to expect that simply uh, or solely relying on the employer's component of their their funding uh, will fund our entire endeavor. But there are multiple revenue streams that can be uh, pulled together to make this all work. So as we look at, again, managing expectations, so I'm thinking, Paula, that uh, what are the the conversations you have as you're doing the outreach to the business community that someone who's just getting started, where are kind of the places to go to find these people to have these conversations? So um, just having connections that I've had in my past career as HR and recruiting manager for a software company, I have those connections, but also seeing what's out there, looking through LinkedIn, I'm very active on LinkedIn, seeing what jobs are out there, um, whether it's advertised or just being talked about on LinkedIn, same with Indeed.com, and then reaching out to those companies who have those job descriptions um, that need to be filled that they're advertising for. So once I see those, then I can reach out to the the companies and find their HR person or hiring manager and tell them about the program. As an alternative to the other ways that they're hiring. Exactly. So tell them about the program and, you know, explain to them that I have eight very well-qualified people that I have resumes for that I can share with them. And um, just it's kind of a gift, you know, to a hiring manager. You know, here's eight beautiful resumes for you to choose choose some people to hire from. <laughs> Tell me about one of those conversations, Scott. I've got to imagine that you've given them this gift. They're like they had no idea. I'm sure you've had a recent conversation. They had no idea this even existed. Yeah, well, definitely. Um, and and returning kind of returning customers i guess you would you would say i talked about um some customers or businesses that had hired an apprentice in the past and came to me asking specifically for you know do i know any software developers that are available and i was able to just work with them and they hired somebody so quickly within a week or two which is really unbelievable usually hiring say a software developer can take months you know once you just gathering the right people together, just getting the right resumes that you need with the right skill set can take, you know, three weeks oftentimes in a in a small community like where we live. And so having those resumes given to you, 
scheduling interviews right away. Sometimes, you know, the hiring process is two weeks rather than two to four months. Isn't that part of the brand promise, Michael, that it's future careers locally grown, as you've said? So it's typically, again, in a small community where I've got a small work, uh, available labor pool, I've got to go hire outside and then import talent. And that takes time and money. And in this case, we're retraining people and we're refreshing and actually adding, we're upskilling the labor pool. And I don't think in general business knows that that's happening. Well, and I think you get, a, you get that loyal workforce. You have people who already live in this community who want to stay here. And then you're not taking that risk of bringing someone from the outside who may or may not, you know, adapt to the community. It may not be a right fit. They're taking a risk themselves of relocating their family. And especially, you know, since we are on the coast of California, it is not an, it is an expensive endeavor. We are not a cheap place to live. Well, then you have that other problem they call the trailing spouse problem. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. And I was going to just add to that, too, is that it's a big commitment for a company as well, not just for the employee. So if a company is hiring from outside, um, you know, there's no guarantee that a job is going to work out. So bringing someone from a different place in California and hiring them, that's a huge process. That's a relocation commitment and expensive. Um, and if things don't work out, then you have a whole nother set of issues where someone's moved here to work for your company and it's not worked out. And it is expensive, small location, not always easy to find another comparable job. But same thing for spouses. You know, we live in a university town, so people are hired to work for the university and their spouses need jobs. Um, the company that I worked for before, a software company, we actually hired a person exactly like that. Her husband got a job um, at the university, and she was very well qualified and very interested in uh, software development. So she did our boot camp, and we hired her, and it was a perfect fit. Yeah, the um, this idea of bringing people into a market where there's like one major employer, and if that doesn't work out, then what are they going to do? And that's not a problem you're solving, because I think there's a huge tech community here that actually needs more people than we can supply, right? Yeah, businesses locally often talk about how we can, how they can elevate their their profile, because whether you're trying to attract candidates locally, who may or may not know that there is this rising tech industry or precision manufacturing industry. Similarly, if you're trying to attract people from outside the area, they want to know that there's more than just one opportunity in this area, that if it doesn't work out with that company, is there a similar company where they could bring their skill set to so that they're not risking everything on one company in a, in a new area. I want to look at the, the idea actually in the name Slow Partners. And in the very beginning, you saw that the only way we are going to solve this problem effectively was to build a partnership. So let's expand that out and think of an, it as an ecosystem. And I think that's unique to how you approach this, Michael. Yeah, you can't lift that couch on your own. It, it, you have to have multiple partners to be able to really do this kind of systems building and ecosystem building that you need your elected officials, you need your chambers of commerce, you need your, your professional business associations, you need your local workforce development board, you need all you need your local 
um, traditional education uh, communities coming involved in this. Everybody, nobody should be overlooked. You should try to involve as many partners as possible because you never know which partner is really going to be able to benefit and really see how they can um, work together to solve what could be separate problems altogether. Is there a particular type of partner that surprised you? Uh, I think Cal Poly Extended Education was a surprising partner, you know, because Cal Poly, they, they're a powerful institution as it is, and they've got a, a great pipeline of students and really great uh, partners for their undergraduate programs. But it was surprising that Extended Education found, you know, a good partnership with us in working with Full Stack Academy and in looking at trying to bring Cal Poly alumni back to San Luis Obispo or tackling this trailing spouse issue of having through extended education an opportunity to take a full stack academy. I think that was a surprising and really welcomed partner in terms of creating workforce and economic development through apprenticeship. So would you um, suggest to someone who's thinking of doing this program to or implementing one of these to I'm thinking of seeing a big ecosystem map on a wall, just kind of start at the middle and then just keep filling in all of the public partnerships, private partnerships, educational partnerships, even foundations, community foundations. Yes, because really our role here is we're intermediaries. We sit between two different um, groups, employers who are looking for candidates and employers potential employees looking to be connected in that. And you never know who's going to be another ally in helping to make those connections right there. And, you know, that's how we define ourselves as an intermediary in terms of slow partners. That sounded like a matchmaker to me. A little bit. Yeah, right? Making these really good matches because you're you're figuring out. I, I think, again, sitting at the center of it and what we've, we talked about in the earlier episode is – creating these relationships, both with the potential employees, but also with the employers and really understanding what they want and being able to be the translator, if you will, right, to go back to the workforce and say, this is what we need. And even going to your program, your partners with Fullstack and others to say, listen, this is because that the needs of business are evolving as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're I'm going to guess you're feeding back. Right. Yeah. I mean, if, if you think about this from a technology perspective, we really are trying to be and I think are becoming a two sided network. And, and we we aim to be the platform that both of these sides of this network um, work and transform through. Right. So we've got employers on one side that have needs, but, you know, don't know the pathway to fulfilling those needs um, in a new way. And we've got inventory of, of this product of candidates on the other side, but needs to be transformed and connected to uh, employers on the other side. And, and we can play this role of uh, creating value through that matchmaking process, which is what we hope we can do. I think that we've explored pretty well the tips and tricks for people that want to um, put in one of these programs. Michael, if someone is they're they're intrigued now, they've listened to a couple of episodes and they would like to learn more and get really into the details of how they implement these things. What's the best way to start? 
They can contact us through hellocareers.org or through slowpartners.org. Just send us an email at info at slowpartners.org, S-L-O, partners.org, San Luis Obispo. Well, they could also listen to season one. Oh, for sure. Right, we got a lot of shows there. Michael, Luke, Paula, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. How will you bring this system to your community and say hello to new careers and goodbye to low-wage jobs? For more episodes, visit hellocareers.org or send us a note to podcast at hellocareers.org. We'd love to hear from you with questions or success stories of how apprenticeship is working in your region. Till next time, I'm Mark Sylvester with Hello Careers. Hello Careers.